Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who brings us great comfort. In the name of Jesus, amen. Here again, a small portion of our epistle lesson today. As St. Paul tells the Ephesians, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So far our text. St. Paul lived for two years with the Ephesians. It was his longest stop in all of his missionary journeys. He preached the gospel to them. The Ephesians first received the Holy Spirit through the ministry of Paul when he baptized them into the death and resurrection of Jesus. As he stayed in Ephesus for those two years, helping the gospel spread throughout the surrounding region, he preached the gospel. He administered the sacraments, and this God's people were filled with true and living faith. True repentance took place in Ephesus as the people saw the weakness of their paganism and their legalism. They burnt their sorcery books in public. They made it known they would not worship these foreign gods any longer. They made it known they would not depend on their own legalism any longer. And after this, when those who profited off the sale of all the pagan statues in Ephesus financially were threatened, there were riots. And as Paul was eager to go preach to these angry crowds, the Christians who loved Paul in Ephesus prevented him from running headlong into an angry mob. These Christians loved Paul. Paul loved these Christians. And as Paul goes throughout his final journey back to Jerusalem, where he knows that he will be arrested, where he knows he will suffer, he stops on the way to talk to the Ephesian pastors. He tells them they most likely will not see him again, but he encourages them to remain steadfast, be on guard against false teachers, and to preach the whole counsel of God. And they weep knowing that they won't see their beloved friend, their beloved teacher, the beloved apostle, ever again. The Ephesians loved Paul. They loved the man who faithfully proclaimed the gospel of Christ to them. And when news comes up that Paul is in prison, just as he said, he was arrested in Jerusalem, shipped off to Rome, and is under house arrest there even now, as he's writing this, this breaks the hearts of the Ephesian congregations. To know that the man that they had so admired, who had demonstrated such godly power, both in preaching and in the miracles Christ empowered him to do, was now hopelessly locked away, humbled, humiliated. There was nothing they could do for him. Paul's suffering created great anguish in their hearts, and so Paul tells them something about his suffering. He wants them to understand that his suffering is not a purely evil thing, rather it is to their glory. Imagine that. Paul's affliction, Paul's imprisonment, Paul's dishonor, the destruction of Paul's public reputation. He says, that is your glory, dear Ephesians. How can that be? 
How can it be that something so unjust and horrendous is glorious for the church of God? It's a mystery to the world. They will never get it. To the world, suffering is a net evil. It must be avoided. It is something to be avoided at all costs. We create every method we can to reduce suffering. You see, we like having that little easy button that we can press in life. You find that path of re least resistance, that path of least pain, that path of least misery, and you hop on as quickly as you can. Maybe to create a world-world example of that, you find a young man setting out on his own for the first time in his life. He's a Christian. He believes in the Bible. He goes to church with his parents. Now he's 18. He goes off to college. And that old maxim, cooperate and graduate, becomes very apparent to him. As the college professors, his fellow students in the campus organization share a certain way of approaching the world that may not be in tandem with the Bible. As the young man is introduced to new ideas like evolution or nihilism or gender theory or feminism or social justice or Marxism in its different forms, and the young man, he just wants to get a degree. He just wants to start his life. He just wants to go to school. He doesn't want to get kicked out of school for having unpopular beliefs. He doesn't want his fellow students to hate him. And so he cooperates. Even as he knows that what is being touted as truth is, is far from it, he cooperates, puts his head down, flies under the radar, and then he gets his degree. He gets a job. It's a high-paying job, a nice city, a nice company. It allows him to buy a good home. It allows him to start a family. And those same ideas start to pop up again. As he's forced to parrot what he said in the university, now he's forced to parrot it at work. And here he has a job, he has a life, he has comfort, he has money, and so he cooperates more and more. And eventually those parroted catchphrases and those social ideas become all that he knows. He starts believing what he's saying as his heart wanders from the truth and he stops going to church because that seems kind of countercultural to the culture he's embraced. It is socially harder to be identified as a Christian so he stops and his children grow up only knowing the ideas that have been produced in the little world that they have set for themselves. In the meantime, the man got good things. He got a degree, a, a job, wealth, a home, other things. But what did it cost him, his spouse? What did it cost his children? Well, they're all lost. They've lost the gospel for the sake of ease and comfort with the world. What will people do for the sake of ease and comfort? Will they kill an unborn child? Will they accept and endorse perversion? Will they hand their children over to an activist world that hates them? Will they throw away God's gifts? I think we know the answers to these questions because we see the world around us doing this every day. Now imagine if this young man would have said no he would have likely maybe not earned that degree, likely not kept that job, likely not had, and likely not had all the money. His life would have been a little bit more difficult in this world. 
He would have lost popularity. He would have lost social acceptance. He would have suffered. It would have been a very hard time for him. And what would he have also kept? His soul? His integrity? His children would have witnessed him struggle, but they would have learned what integrity and faithfulness are. And they would have had a model of what it means to suffer for the sake of something worthy. Now this earns us, not that this earns us anything before God, but he certainly would not have driven himself away from God. He wouldn't have driven himself and his family away from God's holy church. He would not have rejected the gospel. And it would have been better to suffer for the truth, for something good. This is praiseworthy in the church of God. Peter talks about this in St. First Peter. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, the world, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Holy Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who has asked you for a reason for the hope that's within you. Yet do it with gentleness. Do it with respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is why Paul says that his suffering is the glory of the Ephesians. In Paul's suffering, the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed. It's not a shame to the Ephesians that their great teacher now is in prison. That's how the world would see it. They would look at Paul, they'd look at the Ephesians, and they'd say, Oh, you're one of those Christians. Oh, you're a disciple of Paul. Well, isn't your dear Paul in prison? Oh, that's a shame. Don't you have any shame? Don't you want to separate yourself from that shameful Paul? Don't you know that it's distasteful to be following after a jailbird? What do you think you're doing? That's how the world sees it. It's not how God sees it. No, it's simply following after Christ. To suffer for the sake of the gospel is an honor. It's something that we Christians should see as praiseworthy. Not that seeking out suffering is a good thing, but rejoicing in it if it comes because Christ has deemed us worthy to suffer for his sake. That's good. As Paul says to the Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We see this also in the book of Acts. The apostles were arrested by the Sanhedrin, they left them in lockup overnight, but the Lord opened their prison cells and said, hey, go back to the temple courtyards, preach some more. And so they're rounded up and arrested again, as if jails could hold the gospel of Christ. 
And they're brought before the council and they're told, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name anymore, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You need to stop. What does Peter say? He says, we must obey God rather than men. And when the apostles are beaten and they're told to stop teaching and then they're released, the scriptures say, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Why? Why were the apostles so glad to suffer? Why are they happy to be imprisoned, beaten, and even face death for the teaching of the gospel of Christ? Why do they find pleasure in being slandered and hated by those who are in temporal authority over them? It's because who had suffered for them in the beginning? Whose suffering comes first? Whose persecution comes first? It's not ours. It's Jesus. When Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, he stopped and he taught his disciples saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow after me. And where I am, there my servant must be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. But now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. How is Jesus glorified? How is the Father glorified in Christ? It's when he's crucified. It's when the Son of God suffers and dies for sinners. The devil, the world, our fallen flesh, they hate this. They hated Jesus. They despised the fact that God became a man. And that there was a human being who was holy and free from their influence and corruption. Oh, it, it drove them mad. And so what did they do? They wanted to destroy the God-man. They wanted to utterly humiliate him. They wanted his defeat to be broadcast before the world. And so they had him crucified. What the world intended to use as a means for shaming Christ, as the world wanted to use as a means for mocking the Lord, well, God uses this to demonstrate his great love for sinners. And that is his glory. The glory of God is his love for sinful humanity put on display for the world to see. It's the forgiveness of sins that frees us from the bondage of the devil and the destruction that brings sin upon us. It is in this act of worldly shame that God is glorified and we're set free from the power of sin and death. And not only this, but Christ is also further glorified as we follow after him. Because Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. 
And so Paul, he doesn't want the Ephesians to be distressed over the fact that their teacher and the great apostle is now imprisoned and in weakness. No, he wants them to see this as their glory, that the one who delivered the gospel to them is counted worthy to suffer for their sake. And it's that same gospel that was preached in their presence that Paul is now in chains for. Jesus says that if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's good. It is a net good to suffer for the sake of the gospel of Christ. As we bear that gospel, we can wear our suffering with joy. As St. Paul says in Romans, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. You hear that? We await the redemption of our bodies. Because Jesus said that just as his body is like a seed that must be planted in the ground, a dead thing, we know that our bodies must undergo pain, must undergo shame. We will in this world undergo even that final enemy. We will face death. But Jesus also says that even as his body is planted, it will sprout from the earth. And we have seen this. We know this. We confess this, that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's the heart and soul of our Christian confession right there. Jesus lives. Jesus lives and reigns over all of God's creation. He governs and rules through his church on earth so that we might know that he has died and risen for you and me. And in that death and resurrection, we have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. We too know that our bodies will sprout from the earth. We will rise from the dead. We will be glorified by our Father in heaven just as Jesus Christ is glorified. Even now, as we endure suffering, as we endure hardship, as we endure persecutions and everything else, we suffer with joy in our hearts. St. Peter says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, but he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Paul encourages the Ephesians to pray. He tells them what he's praying for. He bows his knees before the Father in heaven, and he asks that he would send the Holy Spirit to teach the Ephesians 
that even in this time of suffering, Christ is at work for them. That the gospel of Christ is there for them. That they can see the love of Christ at work, even as they gather as God's people, even as they have the forgiveness of sins proclaimed to them, even as they live in that gospel that Paul proclaimed at the beginning, Christ is at work for them. And they can understand that even during various trials and tribulations that the gospel is for them, provided for them out of the love of God. Even when their beloved teacher is thrown into prison, they may be filled with the joy and comfort of the gospel. That they might even endure suffering and persecution with great courage and the same joy that Paul presents to them here. Perhaps we might endure some of these hardships with faith and joy as well. As we know that we have the gospel of Christ Jesus applied to us, as we have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we have heard the preaching of the cross proclaimed to us here and now, as we receive the body and blood of Christ, as we have our sins absolved, we too can know that our sufferings in this life are to the glory of God in Christ. This is applied to all suffering. The suffering parent who tirelessly toils for the sake of his children. The husband who sits at the bedside of his sick and failing wife. The grandparent who worries about the world that her grandchildren will have to live in. The man who just lost his job because he would not violate his conscience. The teenager who just lost friends because they would not conform themselves to the world. The person who seems crushed by temptation and is racked with guilt to those who are sick and terrible pain, those who are lonely, those who are depressed, those who are impoverished, those who experience every other sort of suffering in this life, as they endure these things, they endure them in the gospel of Christ. And to be counted worthy to endure such suffering is a blessing when we endure it in the faithfulness of Christ who has died for sinners. He is here for you. He is present for you in your suffering. And as you live in this presence, your suffering is beautiful. It's glorious. It's a witness to the love of God in you. As we remember what St. Paul said back in Romans 5, hope does not put us to shame. Our hope in the gospel, even in the midst of trial, suffering, pain, or sorrow, brings glory to Christ. We know that in this fallen world, for a time, we will have troubles. We also know that these troubles are fading away and giving way to the glory that Christ has worked out for us. And so we will follow him through pain. We will follow him through the hatred of the world. We will follow him through suffering and death and the grave into life, into salvation, into his everlasting kingdom, into our eternal home in the household of God. That hope in suffering is a witness to the world of what Christ has done for you. He has died to forgive sinners. He has brought life and immortality to light. He has freed us from a world that is ruled by evil and has called us into his kingdom that endures in righteousness. We will live in that promise in a few minutes. 
We live in that promise here and now as we will eat and drink the very body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we come before this altar, we will come before God as those who are beaten down by the cares, the pleasures, the pains and the sufferings, the troubles and the hatred, the persecutions and the distresses of this world. And we will testify before that world as we eat and drink the very body and blood of our Lord for the forgiveness of sins that Christ has died for me. Christ's victory is for me. And as we gather as God's church, we live in a confession of the hope that lives within us that Christ lives and reigns even now. And that where he is, there we will be also. As we follow him through the cross into everlasting life, we do so in hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, graciously send your Holy Spirit to us that we may endure all trials and suffer with our faith in Christ intact. In this, allow your gospel to be seen. Cause us to take up our cross and follow after our Lord Jesus, and in doing this, glorify your Son in our presence, so that we might know that our hope is in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And that hope will never put us to shame. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen.